0: Today's Dead Idea. This is the conclusion of our series on the pre-World War One balance of power system that was designed to prevent a Great War from ever happening again, but it led to the Great War, World War One. And today we look at the reactions when it all went uh-oh, spaghettios for Europe. That's what we're talking about today on Dead Ideas. <laughs> Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. The music we just heard was composed by Rachel Westhoff, my lovely wife, who is currently digging a trench to connect the rhubarb patch to the catio in our new house's backyard. (laughs) And My cat just jumped on my lap, too. So, We've been talking about the balance of power system of alliances between great powers that were supposed to balance each other out so equally that a war between them would only result in a stalemate which is pretty much what happened in World War I, that the intention was that no one would be nearsighted enough to start such a war, but, well, as they say, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Evan Luard, in his book Balance of Power, sums up the theory and what never quite worked about it. He says, According to the theory, a state which had aggressive intentions would be deterred by the strength of the alliance formed against it that alliance of many princes and states, which, in the words of Frederick the Great, would create a balance solely designed for maintaining the peace and security of mankind, the league well-concerted and strictly observed, by which, in the words of Walpole, bounds would be set to the turbulence of ambition and the torrent of power restrained. And Ebonouard goes on, But there was little evidence in practice, even when confronted with overwhelmingly powerful coalitions, that states were deterred. Louis Fourteenth in 1688 had every reason to expect that any attack he made would be met with combined force of most of the rest of Europe, yet he was not restrained from launching assaults on Cologne and the Palatinate. Frederick the Great in 1756 was not deterred from invading Saxony by his knowledge that a far superior coalition was being built against him. Revolutionary France was not deterred by the might of Austria and Prussia, and eventually most of the rest of Europe in 1793 to 1795. If even a preponderance of power had so little effect on the actions of states, it was unlikely that a balance could be expected to prevent warlike action by an ambitious ruler who saw the opportunity of aggrandizement. The theory, borrowing the language of mechanics, implied that the actions of states could be determined by mechanical forces, but it seriously underplayed The psychological factors influencing the behavior of national leaders, which was often less rational and deterministic than the theory suggested. So that's Evan Luard's take on what never quite worked about the balance of power system. And we saw some of these psychological factors he was talking about in part two, where Frederick the Great nearly lost the Seven Years' War because Maria Theresa, his enemy, stubbornly refused to concede defeat, even when she was outmoved, out of spite for having lost Silesia to him years before. And just by stubbornly holding out when it made no sense to do so, Frederick's armies gradually were worn down to the point where he might have actually lost that war had Russia not switched sides and come in on his side. And we also saw, in Part 3 on the rise of nationalism in this series, how the psychological motivation provided by nationalism created a dangerous situation where many were no longer acting out of immediate expediency, but out of idealistic, nationalistic ideologies, which made the balance of power unpredictable. And then in part four, we focused in on the Balkans with Adam McKithern's aide there as a guest co-host, and we saw how that whole situation was just ready to blow. So now... In our conclusion, we're going to look at what happened when it did. We're going to read some letters to the editor from 1914 in which people express their opinions on the new war. So that's going to be really interesting, I think. But we've also got a bunch of other stuff that we're going to read and, and talk about today. So before any of that, let's just back up just a bit to get how people felt just before the war. As we said in Part 1 of this series, the Great Powers had fallen into two main groupings. The Triple Alliance of Germany, Austria-Hungary, and Italy, which was balanced against the Triple Entente of France, Russia, and Britain. And the maintenance of these coalitions, straining against each other like massive tectonic plates or something, was accompanied with a great deal of anxiety. So we're going to go now to an article from February 1902 from the Literary Digest, which kind of exemplifies this. It's after a scandalous incident in which a number of Polish school children were apparently flogged in a German school at the same time that nations were debating whether or not to renew the Triple Alliance. and. Flogging in 1902 may not sound like a really big deal, because they probably did it all the time, and that's true, but the background to this was they had recently made German the mandatory language in Polish schools which were in German-controlled territories, and children in this particular school at Russian refused to speak German and would rather take the flogging as punishment than speak German. So it was was very much caught up in, in the whole nationalistic identity kind of thing going on here. Okay, so let's go to that article right now. This is titled, Effect of the Polish Child Floggings on the Triple Alliance. The notion that the Russian episode has imperiled the renewal of the Triple Alliance, or that it could even casually trouble the cordial relations of the United Powers, is too wild to call for serious contradiction. That's a quote there that he starts off with. In this way, the Vossische Zeitung parentheses Berlin, must be a Berlin newspaper or magazine, begins an elaborate editorial on Austria-Hungary and the Russian Affair. And it continues, but it is easy to understand why the opponents of the Triple Alliance would elevate every trifle to the rank of a reason of state and take advantage of every unlikely occasion to sow hatred of Germany. In Austria, Especially in Galicia, there is fruitful soil at hand, and the agitators are at work in Italy, too. It must be acknowledged that the disturbers are on the alert, and they know just what they want. But though the throw of a stone may disturb a pond, it cannot affect the ocean. The Triple Alliance would long since have lost all significance if it could be disturbed by such considerations, or even lightly affected by them. So, in other words, the German paper is being like, oh, the Triple Alliance is fine, no worries, this is nothing. Which clearly means that there were a lot of people who were wondering if this was seriously going to endanger the Triple Alliance. There was a lot of anxiety about that. And keep in mind, too, that this is the German paper defending, you know, German action in these Polish schools. So, we're getting a, definitely a bias there. So, that. It just illustrates just how wrapped up even such a localized incident as that could become um, at this time. It could become an international incident. And the same can be felt in a Literary Digest article from May of that year, just after the announcement that the Triple Alliance would, in fact, be renewed. Okay, so this one is another editorial entitled Renewal of the Triple Alliance the ministerial newspapers of Austria-Hungary hail the news with enthusiasm. The Prester Lloyd of Budapest saying, The relation of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy to Germany and Italy is firmly rooted in public opinion. He who does not believe in his own capacity to wrench oaks and palms from the earth with his unaided hand may contemplate with equanimity the attempts to shatter the alliance. To be sure, The Triple Alliance has been declaimed against in former meetings of the Austro-Hungarian delegations. In the Austrian portion, the Czechs, and in the Hungarian portion certain uncompromising extremists have played the part of Devil's advocate, but they have accomplished nothing and have not compromised the Alliance. The Compact can easily withstand such onslaughts, and we speak so unreservedly of the Triple Alliance and not merely of ties unlimited as to duration between Austria-Hungary and Germany, because we do not for a moment doubt the maintenance of the old relationships. Italy has as little reason to turn from her allies as Austria-Hungary. So, again, attempts to tamp down fears which must have been quite rampant in order to require addressing in such bombastic tones as that. So, you have to infer a little bit. But it seems pretty clear that people were worried about the maintenance of these alliances and what would happen if they did not come through. Finally, we go now to an article from 1906, which is just four years later, in which the Triple Alliance seems again to be at risk and more than ever. And this article follows something called the First Moroccan Crisis, in which France and Italy had plotted to secretly split Morocco between them without the knowledge of the other great powers in Europe. This article is another editorial, and it's entitled Death Agonies of the Triple Alliance. The Triple Alliance of Germany, Italy, and Austria received its death blow at the Algeciras Conference, according to many observers among the European press. Its dying struggles, says an Italian paper, formed the principal feature of that protracted consultation. The Triple Alliance has long been in a shaky condition. The Hungarian element in the Austro Hungarian Empire has already, as the Literary Digest pointed out, given up all interest in the Dreibund, which is the Triple Alliance in German. The Vienna Allgemeine Zeitung even charges Italy with working secretly against Austria by gifts of artillery to Montenegro. The Popolo Romano of Rome replies that Austria's charge is, quote, sublimely ridiculous. And the Fosicia Zeitung, Berlin, angered by Italy's failure to support Germany at Algeciras, has kept asking during the session of the Morocco Conference what Italy's presence in the Triple Alliance is good for. England, says this journal, is drawing closer to Italy and is preparing to form an alliance with Spain with a further view to including Portugal in the Entente. The Fosicia Zeitung repeats the words of Prince von Bülow, that there is, at present, no need for the alliance, which, it is to be believed, is more advantageous to Italy than to Germany. It concludes in somewhat patronizing vein as follows, We have no intention to treat Italy as underage and to force her back into the right way. We do not wish to meddle in her domestic affairs, but we really should like to know whether we can count in advance upon Italy as one of our allies or if we must expect to find her among our envious adversaries." And that's where we'll leave that one off. In fact, when World War I did come about, um, Italy did not follow through on its Triple Alliance pledge, stayed out of the war, and later actually came in on the side of the Triple Entente. Um, so, but at this time, this is all before that, and. It's becoming clear that Italy is not so sure that it's really wanting to be in this Triple Alliance anymore. So, again, huge amounts of anxiety going on over whether or not these alliances will be continued, and what the hell happens if they are not. Everything's going to be, you know, scrambled. And here it's talking about England might become allies with Spain and Portugal, and then then what happens? Other people will be forced to drop other alliances. Everything's going to be reset, and the balance of power is going to be threatened. So that's the kind of anxiety with which the maintenance of these great alliances were held at the time. Okay, people were on pins and needles, and other people were trying to banish those same pins and needles, but clearly those attempting to tamp down the concerns believed, or at least wanted to believe, that no one would actually be dumb enough to start a great war. No one, really, seriously, would be that reckless. Seriously, right? But then, of course, in July of 1914, it happened. So we go now to editorial coverage of the event, and it's entitled The Assassinations at Sarajevo, from July of 1914, The Outlook. All friends of Austria Hungary were shocked by the murder on June 28th of the heir to the throne, the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, and his wife, the Duchess of Hohenberg. Those in exalted stations are never free from some sudden attack by some crazed man, as the cases of Lincoln and Garfield and McKinley, of King Humbert of Italy and King George of Greece remind us. In the present instance, murder has removed those who were about to succeed to great power. Franz Ferdinand was not a popular prince. He was reserved, taciturn, moody, opinionated, supposed to be under Jesuit control, a jingo, a militarist, not altogether a happy combination. Accident made him, as the nephew of the venerable Austrian emperor, heir to the throne. The world looked on with misgiving. For of all monarchs, the Emperor of Austria Hungary has best known how to manage the conglomeration of the many different nationalities which make up the dual empire, meaning Austria Hungary. It might well be triple, as Franz Ferdinand himself suggested not long ago, the third part to be Slav. And that there is a reference to what we heard in the last episode when we talk about the Balkans, where we said that Franz Ferdinand was actually planning to give ethnic groups within the empire greater autonomy uh he wanted to make a third independent government within austria-hungary basically there'd be the germans the hungarians and the slavs but as we said last time not everybody was fooled by that ploy which is really kind of attempt to give them kind of what they wanted so that they would just shut up and be quiet and if if this was if so if this successfully pacified the Slavs, then they would lose their chance at independence, and so there were people who were angry at Franz Ferdinand for actually trying to give them this autonomy because they knew that they were so close, if they just held out, then they could get real independence and real autonomy. The article goes on, With bitter irony, the prince met his death at the hands of a Slav, a Serb. The archduke and his wife, were entering Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia, when a bomb was burst immediately behind their motor, shattering the motor which followed it and injuring its occupants. Moved by this circumstance, the Archduke, before replying later to the mayor's message of welcome, said, quote, an amazing indignity has been perpetrated. You have received us with bombs, unquote. <laughs> with his wife, He then drove towards the hospital to inquire after the condition of the sufferers from the bomb. Which, that was an amazing, like, why? (laughs) So an attempt on his life had just been made. He survived it because the bomb hit the motor, not him. Then he decides to go back across Sarajevo in order to inquire on the condition of the people in the hospital from the bomb. And that's when the real terrible bit happened. When a young man sprang out of the crowd and aimed a pistol at the duchess her husband immediately threw himself in front of her to shield her the weapon used was an automatic pistol both occupants of the motor received mortal wounds from which they soon expired now i don't know if gavrilo princip was actually trying to hit the duchess i don't think so i think he said in his testimony that he was trying to hit franz ferdinand and only accidentally and with great regret hit the duchess Nevertheless, both of them were shot and mortally wounded. And it was just an amazing coincidence that he was even there at the time, and even that he had the time to shoot, because what happened was they were driving back to the hospital, and they took a little bit of a wrong turn or something, and just happened to turn up in front of the cafe or whatever it was where Gavrilio Princip was sitting, all dejected, because his organization's attempt at the assassination had failed. He sees, then, that Franz Ferdinand is in this car. The car stops because it has to back up, and so there's this moment where they're stationary and perfect sitting ducks, and he just pulls out his pistol and plunks them. Just amazing series of coincidences that starts this whole thing off. So, anyway, I'll just uh, skipping down a little bit for one more paragraph of this article. He says, The assassination of the Archduke and his wife was followed by bloody riots at Mostar, the capital of Herzegovina, between Mohammedan Croats and the Serbs. So Mohammedan meaning Muslim. In the attempts of the Croats, aided by Austrians, to drive the Serbs back into their own quarters, many serious incendiary fires were started, which at one time threatened the destruction of the city. It was reported that in the street fighting in Mostar, over 200 Serbs were killed. Rioting also broke out in other towns of Herzegovina. So, that was the assassination. But that alone did not start the war, actually. War, did, war was not immediately declared upon the shooting. Nearly a month passed, in fact. It was only when Serbia refused to allow Austria-Hungary permission to conduct an unfettered investigation in Serbia whatever that means that it finally declared war in full knowledge that it could very well drag the whole world into it with it now how could they do such a thing it sounds it sounds absurd it sounds crazy it sounds deranged but to help american readers understand austria hungary's reaction there's actually this amazing article from 1914 august so it's one month later from the literary digest where it, he writes to an American audience to give an analogy to try to help them understand it at the time, okay? And in this article, the author writes, a close parallel to Austria's case would be to suppose Texas filled with rebellious Mexicans anxious to secede to Mexico and a president of the United States assassinated by a Texan affiliated with a band of conspirators at the Mexican capital. So in this analogy, Bosnia's Texas, Serbia is Mexico. The Texan assassin is Gavrilo Princip of the Black Hand Conspiracy. So just imagine the kind of wrath and ire that you would feel if uh, this Tex-Mex dude offed the president. And actually, to be honest, um, in terms of sheer national rage, an even closer to home analogy for us here in 2017 might be the 9-11 attacks. I mean, bin Laden was not acting at the direction of Iraq, but damn it, we were mad, and someone had to pay and screw the consequences. And that was pretty much Austria-Hungary at the time. That's the wrath that was stirred up. That's how the whole world was lit on fire. And that was Bismarck's nightmare war sparked by, quote, some damn foolish thing in the Balkans, unquote. So, Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia, And from there, the dominoes began to fall. It caused Serbia's ally Russia to start mobilizing its forces, which caused Austria-Hungary's ally Germany to declare war, and knowing that if it was to avoid a war on two fronts with both Russia and Russia's allies France, it would have to take France down quick so that it could turn and face Russia. So Germany attacked France, but along the way into France was Belgium, which caused Belgium's ally Britain to declare war, And so the dominoes fell till pretty much all of Europe was engulfed in this one big conflagration. Now all this having happened, finally, let's get a feel for the reactions of people just after the outbreak of this great war. These are letters to the editor of a New York periodical called The Outlook, that we've heard a lot from in this series, actually. So these are mainly going to be American views, but at least it gives us something firsthand from the times. So let's take a look. This is entitled, What Readers of the Outlook Think of the War. And these are all excerpts from letters, by the way, so they're just short. But the first one is from Henry C. Scheer from Glen Ridge, New Jersey, who writes, The sympathy expressed for the German people and the criticism against their government is entirely inconsistent with the thought of the German nation. The people and their government are one in this great fight against Slavism and Barbarism. There is absolutely no question in my mind but that Germany is waging the fight single-handed for the entire civilized world against the aggression of the Russian horde. So (laughs) there you can see um, American pro-German support in holding Russia as the main perpetrator or enemy or aggressor here, which I guess kind of you could say it because Russia was the first to mobilize their forces, but at the same time it's so complicated, right? So American sympathies, remember America doesn't get into World War I until nearly the very end, so American sympathies are very much divided at this time. All right, next we have a comment from AJ Geer, from Cleveland, Ohio, who writes, You entirely miss the point. And I'm sure he's writing to a previous article writer from the Literary Digest or something. You entirely miss the point. It is a question of Teutonic supremacy, synonymous with Enlightenment or Muscovite rule, equivalent to oppression. And it is the Muscovite rule England and France are endeavoring to fasten on Europe by their assistance. So again, pro-Germany, anti-Russia. The next one. So this is from L.P. Juvet from Glen Falls, New York. If I am correctly informed, this war is the greatest crime of the ages. Its lesson to the 20th century is to show humanity the stupendous stupidity of 100 millions of intelligent beings putting their lives and that of their families in the hands and at the disposal of two men of questionable sanity, to be used with as little consideration as a Kansas farmer gives his grasshoppers. (laughs) What became of the sons of German patriots that ran from Europe in 1848 to escape such conditions as now exist? And that last reference is very interesting. Um, So in 1848, if you don't know, that was the year that the French Revolution kicked off, and there was actually... It was you, you remember the Arab Spring that happened quite recently in the Middle East. Well, that was basically very much like the 1848 Spring Revolutions. In fact, the whole the whole name Arab Spring is a is like punning on the European Spring of 1848, where first there was the revolution in France, and that made everybody inspired, and they just went nuts all across Europe, and there was like dozens of revolutions and uprisings, most of which. Didn't really amount to anything in the end, but people were angry. And here, I'm guessing what this guy means, this American, means by the sons of German patriots that ran from Europe in 1848 to escape such conditions. I bet there was a flood of German emigration out of Germany and to America. That's my guess. I don't know, but that's what I'm guessing here. So anyway, he's saying this war is just stupid. Why are they fighting it? We just got two despots pitted against each other, which would be the Kaiser and the Tsar, I imagine. And so he's saying, like, come on, guys. Okay, and interesting, very interesting to me so far, we've heard three already, and not a single one of them has mentioned anything about the Balkans or the assassination. It's interesting because it doesn't seem to be that anybody's really under any illusion that this war is about the Balkans. It's not about the Balkans. It was just started by it. It was just sparked by it. It's about the balance of power and the huge, inevitable conflict that was brewing in the European situation at the time. Very interesting. All right, our next letter is from H.A. Butzow from Watsika, Illinois. And... I'm not sure if Butzau is a different ethnicity than the previous people that we have heard, so I'm wondering if that's going to contribute here. Let's take a look. He says, I have just read your statement, The War Against Popular Rights. Okay, so that must be the article that they're all replying to here. And take the liberty to say that I am pained and grieved at the misstatement of the matters and affairs in Europe. The author of the statement cannot have knowledge of history or he deliberately distorts to create sympathy. Quote, Austria wanted Serbia, unquote, he says, when he should have known that Serbian independence was obtained mainly by the goodwill of Austria. That the continued agitation and inciting to revolts and insurrection emanating from the secure retreat in Serbia led to the assassination in Bosnia by a Serbian with Serbian arms from the state armory and that the denial of the demand of austria to have a representative at the trial of the conspirators against peace and order in austria-hungary caused the declaration of war okay so that's a contrary uh, opinion compared to the others so one of very few that we see here that are really even mentioning the balkans or what happened there um so yeah that is cool that's interesting and by the way Um, I always have to say this just so that nobody writes in thinking that I'm getting it wrong. At this time, Serbia is spelled S-E-R-V-I-A, Serbia. So that's that's actually accurate to the Times, the way I'm reading that. All right, the next one comes from L.C. Ford from Harrogate, Tennessee. He says, I should probably not be saying he says. With all these initials, it could very much be a woman. Anyway. The person says, I have just read the August 15th number of the outlook and was greatly interested in your article on the war against popular rights. Your views on the European war are the views of 95% of the people of East Tennessee who appreciate the brave struggle of little Serbia against her infinitely selfish and egotistical antagonist, Austria, and heartily sympathize with the small but liberty-loving nation south of the Danube. The almost inevitable result of this war will be the downfall of the Hohenzollern dynasty, which is the dynasty of Kaisers in Germany at the time, amidst the lamentations and execrations of the mothers left childless, the wives left husbandless, the children left fatherless, and a people humiliated, crushed, and defeated. Hmm. So another one that actually mentions Serbia, and in a relatively positive light. Okay, next we have Robert M. E. Schoffler, M.D., so a doctor, from Kansas City, Missouri. All right. One of the great facts in history has been the pressure of the semi-barbaric people of the East (laughs) against the civilization of the West. Every schoolboy knows this, but the outlook makes no account in its editorial of the almost inevitable conflict between Slav and Teuton. If the fervent wish of your editor is gratified and Germany is crushed, is it not probable that Russia will be the only permanent beneficiary of the war? After France has lost the provinces and England has destroyed the German fleet, which has caused her so much hysteria, and recovered the markets which the Germans won in fair competition, then what? Why not Russia in possession of most of Austria and the Balkans, perhaps under the alias of Greater Serbia, then a rest, then Turkey and Persia, then after another rest, India, and in the fullness of time, all of Europe she desires. Who can stop her on land with Germany crushed? Okay, so it, it seems to be that the article they're replying to was anti-German, and so that's probably why we're getting so many pro-German replies here. Or anyway, Robert continues... It may be in the providence of God the Slav will have so developed as to be worthy of the mastery of the world by that day, but it ill becomes Anglo Saxons in this hour to uphold his hands and further his plan by sword or pen. Hmm. I like how his letters to the editor remind me ever so much of an internet forum. <laughs> it's like, how dare you! Oh. Anyway, okay, so next we have M.C. Burke from Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Among the many problems suggested by the present war in Europe, not the least interesting is the question of its final effect upon government. The opinion is often expressed that a costly and devastating war must have a blighting effect upon democratic institutions. At first sight, this view seems plausible, but the course of history, I think, teaches us precisely the contrary. Certainly for the defeated nation, the post-bellum period has more than once proved a period of political regeneration. Take Prussia. Utterly crushed beneath the heel of Napoleon, she emancipated her serfs, not surely from motives of sweet Christian charity, but because a freeman is a better fighter than a slave. Oh, that's interesting. Now, I had heard that wherever Napoleon went Napoleon imposed freedom of the serfs. But I don't necessarily know if that's exactly true of Prussia. So I don't know. I would put an asterisk by what that person just said. Maybe it's accurate, maybe it's not. I don't I don't know. Okay, anyway, he goes on. Take France. Her downfall in 1870 involved an abolition involved an abolition of the empire and a return to the republic. Take Russia. It is assuredly no accident that she secured her first parliament after her repulse at the hands of the Japanese. That would be the Russo-Japanese War. Even in backward Turkey, there are signs that the repeated losses of territory have fed a feeble but perfectly genuine movement toward reform. Does the great moral law apply also to nations? He that loses his life shall find it. So he seems to be saying, well... So whoever, whatever the effect of this war, whoever gets taken down by it, maybe it's a good thing out of this kind of like creative destruction kind of idea. Um, that's an interesting kind of take on it. Okay. So we've got a, just a, two more. We go now to Carl Greiner, M.D., maybe another doctor, from Sparta, Michigan. Your editorial, The War Against Popular Rights, in the outlook for August 15, shows such a misunderstanding of the past and present conditions, such a twisting of historical facts and inconsequent reasoning, that I cannot help but criticize the same severely. (laughs) Okay, this this one's like Grandpa Simpson writing in to complain. (laughs) I've definitely read this before on some internet forum. Okay. According to your version of the present European war, Emperor William, which would be the Kaiser of Germany, is the goat, quote unquote. If Germany wanted war, why did she not begin one while the English had their hands full in the Transvaal, or Russia in the Far East? If the German emperor is such a brute as you describe him, why is the emigration from Germany so much less now than it was at the beginning of his reign? If it was not the German emperor who kept the peace of Europe in the past 25 years, who has kept it? It would be absolute calumny to accuse him of wanting war. The Germans love their emperor. They like authority, and their country looks orderly. The American dislikes authority, and his country shows the dislike. Suppose the Chinese or Japanese should threaten to overwhelm the United States, as the Slavs do Austria and Germany, What a howl to arms would rise at once in the face of such danger. You speak of German violating Belgium's neutrality. How about Dr. Jamieson's raid into the Transvaal? The occupation of the Transvaal, Egypt, Tibet by the British, of China and Persia by Russia, of New Mexico and Arizona by the United States. Today, England would be only too glad to grab the Panama Canal. The talk of arbitration in this war shows that those who are talking entirely fail to grasp the situation. No doubt England would like to arbitrate and leave Germany and Austria in the status quo. Arbitration would do about as much good as it would have done to arbitrate the Civil War. Bernard Shaw has let the cat out of the bag by declaring that, quote, the English do not want a Germany of Bismarck, but one of Beethoven and Gotha, unquote. Of course, they do not want a Germany that amounts to something. They want a Germany that is sterile and does not amount to anything. They would like a Germany that furnishes music and poetry for them and the rest of the world while England goes after the commerce and the colonies. Very altruistic indeed on the part of John Bull. In writing this letter to your esteemed publication, I am voicing, I sincerely believe, the sentiments of the majority of patriotic Austrians and Germans. They love their bride, the United States, (laughs) and they honor their mother, Austria, and Germany. Hmm. So again, very much pro-Germany. And also what I'm really surprised at here is none of these people really seem to be realizing just the scale of the war that they're getting into yet. This is only September, so it's only a few months in. So... right now they seem to be talking about it as if it was just any other war. Bad, yes, but they're mainly talking about who's responsible for it. And yes, of course, the, the focus of this is replying to whatever the focus of the article was, but still, the point is nobody's like bringing up like this is a different kind of war, this is worse than it's ever been before, how could this have happened? They're still kind of in the days of the shock right after you know the car accident which was the assassination of sarajevo which started this war huh so that's that is kind of interesting and a little bit surprising to me all right our last writer here is h.m visecki from hamburg new york i ask you i ask you is french militarism not surpassing any german tendencies along this line Or is the difference between classes and castes, between pride of purse and birth, any less dominant in England than in Germany or Austria? Is it true that the emperor of Germany enjoys some prerogatives which are incompatible with true democracy? But despite that, democracy can hardly be said to be less advanced in Germany than in Great Britain. To make it appear that an autocrat, the German emperor, urged by overweening pride and ambition, seeks to halt popular liberty and social development by this war, you must leave out of consideration that the autocrat par excellence, the Tsar, is fighting with the Allies, and that the German nation is rallying solidly around its leader. It is not only fair, but also wise, to hear the other side. Germany would not consider this a fight for its very existence if it were not that England's envy of her commercial prosperity and France's spirit of revenge, frequently manifested, forced the sword into her unwilling hands after more than 40 years of peace. Okay, so another pro-German one. And that's where we will leave that here. Now, like I said, there's a reason why, you know, they're getting this particular focus amongst these letters, because of what the writer wrote that they're responding to. But I will say that I searched pretty hard on the on the site unz.org that has all these public domain periodical articles from the time, I searched pretty hard for any other kind of similar you know letters written in or popular sentiment, and couldn't find much of anything else. So what I'm trying to say is that I wouldn't disqualify these opinions out of hand just because of what they're responding to. It probably represents at least something of popular opinion in. America, if not elsewhere, we should keep in mind that there's a lot of German Americans as well, but also a lot of Slavic Americans and so on. So, all right. Well, yeah, that was that was quite fascinating, I have to say, just to, just to get that little taste of of what what people were thinking at the time, you know, firsthand. So anyway, let's now take it home here. Let's let's finish up our series and let's um, let's talk about how the Great War actually went so it saw horrors as we all know like trench foot and chemical warfare and unprecedented numbers of dead and wounded far in excess of the napoleonic wars which had been the worst since the seven years war which had been the worst since the 30 years war which had been the original thing that was so bad that the balance of power system of the peace of westphalia had been put in place so that no such war would ever happen again, but it did. The Seven Years' War happened, and then it happened again. The Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolutionary Wars happened, and then now it's happened again. The Great War, and this one's worse than any of those were. So, by the end of World War I, it was clear that the balance of power system was just not working out. Something else, or at least something in addition, had to be done. U.S. President Woodrow Wilson blamed the balance of power system itself for dragging Europe and the world into war and proposed something new. He called it a League of Nations to help states resolve disputes without resorting to war. It would be sort of a more amped up version of the the Congress of Vienna and Berlin that we saw last time, but more formal and, you know, it wasn't quite the UN yet, but it was a step to it. And we go now to our last article for the day. This is going to be from 1919, which is one year after World War One ended. This is from an author named Dr. Charles Van Heys, who is writing of the post-war future in a periodical called The Forum, and he writes rather prophetically. Van Heys says, If, when the terms of peace have been concluded, some way has not been worked out so that gigantic wars will not recur, we shall be obliged to conclude that the human being has not traveled sufficiently far along the road of rationalism to learn even by the most bitter and costly experience. To prevent the recurrence of great wars, there is the proposal for a League of Free Nations. This League must be created as an integral part of the terms of peace. The President of the United States and the Premier of Great Britain are definitely committed to it. High officials of France, Italy, and Japan have expressed warm sympathy with the idea of the League. This is the golden opportunity today. If the principle be allowed to slip away, and each of the allied nations again devotes itself exclusively to its own interests, It will then be very difficult to form an effective organization for safeguarding the world's peace. Today, when the allied nations are acting together in all that relates to the terms of peace, is the time that they are most likely to agree upon obligations to prevent the recurrence of wars. As Americans, it is important to consider the obligations that our participants in such an association would bring upon us. They are great. But if we shirk the responsibility, it is inevitable that sometime in the future we will again be obliged to intervene in a war for which we are in no way responsible and the initiation of which we had no means to control. Now, Van Heys's words ring prophetic because America would, in fact, shirk its responsibility. After Wilson worked so hard to set up the League of Nations and convince the other nations to um, be part of it, America declined to join it. It was just local politics, domestic politics in America that blocked it from happening, as far as I understand. And this hamstrings the League from the very start. Wilson is overruled by local domestic politics, and that's just that. Furthermore... Just as Van Heys wrote, America would in fact have to intervene in another war. Because after the trauma of the Great Depression, which happened in the 30s, that led some peoples in Europe to place their hope in bellicose fascist dictators, and then the League was challenged to keep the peace. Mussolini and Hitler were essentially daring the League, hey, what are you going to do to stop them from grabbing territory? And in response to their actions, the League didn't do anything. They couldn't manage to pull together enough common opinion to put up any kind of uh, effective response. And so the League just proved a paper tiger, and tensions escalated into an even more lethal war than World War I had been, World War II. And after World War Two finally ended, then the League was replaced by the United Nations, which to this day, tries, tries to keep the peace, but not necessarily always with success. All right, so to conclude this series, let's now finally look at one of the questions that was raised in part one of this series, at the very beginning. Are we still in a balance of power system? Many do still refer to today's international relations as the Westphalian system. Put in place with the 1648 piece of Westphalia, in which started all this talk about the balance of power. But it may be the case that we are moving beyond it, and here's why. So remember in part one how we said that one of the things required for a balance of power system to work is that states have to be close enough in relative strength so that no single power can overpower all the others combined. Well, since the end of the Cold War, at least, there has really only been one major superpower, and that is the United States. I mean, China, yes, China is on the up, and Russia is also coming back in a big way. But for this span of years, at least, who's to say about the future? But for that span of years since the end of the Cold War until now, America has been the big kid on the block, and in such a situation... Where one power enjoys unilateral hegemony, it makes more sense for other powers to work with rather than against that power. So that's why the balance of power might not obtain in such a situation, because they they can't balance them out anyway, right? So, of course, though, asterisk on this, it doesn't mean that they have to like the hegemony of that great power, by no means, And it doesn't mean that they can't find other ways to undermine that hegemony and get their own way. And the rise of terrorism kind of makes sense from this perspective as a means of overcoming this highly asymmetrical situation of having one power in the world that, if it really wants to, militarily at least, could pretty much get its way if it was willing to commit all its forces. So terrorism is specifically designed to fight asymmetrical situations like that kind of makes sense so if the balance of power system then is no longer in place in today's world then the next question i guess on my mind would be will what we have now keep the peace any better than the balance of power system did which was not very well <laughs> and i have to say i'm not so sure i'm i'm conflicted i'm divided On the one hand, the world has had nuclear weapons for quite some time now, and they were used once by America at the end of World War II, but haven't been used since, and there were plenty of opportunities to do so. So that is at least somewhat encouraging. Perhaps there's something different about the nuclear deterrent, and I really want to believe that there is, I really do. But on the other hand... The balance of power basically had the same idea going. I mean, the idea of another great war, like the Thirty Years' War, was their idea of a nuclear holocaust. And that didn't keep them from going to war. So is the nuclear deterrent really that different? I don't know. But there's something even more distressing about this situation. So if we look at the period of time between great wars, starting from when all of this got started, like the Thirty Years' War, right? If we look at the period of the really big wars during that time, it starts to look like maybe there just hasn't been enough time elapsed for us to have another really big one. It may not be that it's the nuclear deterrent that's keeping us from destroying ourselves. It may just be that it hasn't been long enough yet. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, do the math, okay? So... Between the Thirty Years' War and the Seven Years' War was 106 years, okay? It took 106 years for another really big war to happen. There were lots of little wars between that, but not a big war until the Seven Years' War, okay? Between the Seven Years' War and the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolutionary Wars was 40 years, okay? Considerably less. Then between the French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars... And World War I was 99 years, okay? And if you average those periods out, then you get 82 years. An average of 82 years between really bad wars. Now, how long has it been since our last great war, World War II? As of 2017, it has been 72 years. So, by that reckoning, maybe there just hasn't been enough time for another truly great war to spark? And it would also appear that we are due for another one kind of soon. So, I want to say that no, that's bad math, that's silly, that's alarmist. And 51% of me kind of believes that, but there's kind of 49% of me that doesn't. I mean, as we saw at the beginning of this episode, that is exactly the kind of thing that people were saying right before World War One. They were, They were, like... No, you're worried about the Triple Alliance and everything, you know, not being renewed. And don't worry, it's all going to happen. It'll be fine. We're going to keep the peace. Don't worry about it. That's what they're saying. And so I want to believe that no, the nuclear threat, nobody be dumb enough to actually push the button. But I don't know. I mean, if Bismarck were here today, he might truly fear another great war which may very well spark from some damn foolish thing in the Middle East or in the Koreas. So, I don't know. And (laughs) that's where we're going to leave it for today. That's it for this episode. Nice optimistic ending, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry for the downer, folks. Um, So if you liked this series and you want to show support, Why not support us on Patreon? You can get your portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. Do so quick before we blow ourselves up with nuclear weapons. (laughs) Anyway, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash deadideaspod, and we promise we will make you look awesome. So support us on Patreon. All right, everybody. See you next week for our next big epic series, which is going to be on cuneiform. Yes, we've been looking forward to it for quite some time. Uh, We dangled it in front of you before, and now we're really going to do it. So that's what's coming down the pipe next. We'll see you then for the world's oldest civilization, Sumeria, and the first writing in the world, Cuneiform. That's next week. I'm BT Newberg, and this is Dead Ideas. Please don't blow us up, everybody. Stop it, Fishy. Don't knock that off.